Good evening. It is good to be together. Praise God for the gift of the church. Um, is Chris around? I think, I think this is a little, a little like feedback rolling right on the edge of this thing. Oh, well. well someone back there will figure it out. Um, guys, I'm glad to be together. Good evening. It's such a joy, such a privilege to worship together as the church. I am so glad you guys made the trek to be here. If you are at home tonight, hello, greetings. Uh, and and I, before we jump into this, I have to, to mention this part because we have lower capacity in this space than we did at Crestview. And so uh, we actually sold out, if that's not the right term, but we ran out of reserved seats for tonight. And we had several people who were bummed about that. And so uh, we're working through the logistics of what it might look like to do uh, two gatherings on Sunday evening, and we're going to need you guys' help to figure that out, just because two evening gatherings, it's just a little more complicated to figure out, and so you guys will be getting some kind of communication this week, and, and the whole thing is this, we just, just to be blunt, we just need to figure out how many of you will actually regularly attend a Sunday evening gathering so that we don't uh, make the shift logistically to shift over to, to two gatherings and then one maxes out and one has three people in it. So um, if uh, you'll get some kind of communication about that, but we really just need to figure out um, who actually feels comfortable regularly coming to these gatherings. And if that's enough people, we will figure it out and we'll, and we'll do two and we'll do one that is a little more friendly for the kiddos with bedtimes and, and one for those of you guys who like primetime television. So um, That'll be that. But, but tonight, so, so we're starting a new series tonight called Visible, and we're going to be talking about the church. Uh, you could say, if you want to get nerdy, you could say this is an ecclesiological series where we're going to be talking about uh, the life of the church, or w- w- what does the Bible say about the identity, the purpose of the church? And it essentially comes back to this. I, I feel like in the midst of everything going on in our world right now, a lot of people are asking some of these fundamental identity questions about things. I mean, in, in the last six months, the way COVID has affected our nation has caused a lot of us to step back and ask questions like, what is an office? And what is a normal work week? And what is education? And, and how do those things work in this world? And I think uh, in, in church world, that's been really evident, right? You know, we we say a lot theologically, well, the church is not the building. And I think most of you, if you've spent some time in church world, you're like, yeah, I've heard that. I affirm that. Well, in the last six months, we got to step back and go, the church is also apparently not an in-person gathering or in-person small groups or a lot of other things that are the normal kind of trappings of church life. A, A lot of just our, a, a lot of the, 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 the actions and the things, the, the programs in our schedule that we use to connect our personal faith journey to the life of the church have just been disrupted. And so I think it's a really appropriate time to step back and say, what even is this thing? So my goal over the next several weeks will be to look at some of the the biblical passages that talk about the life of the church and kind of help us collectively build a working definition of church life. So before we jump into our text for today, we're going to be in Matthew 16, if you want to 
go ahead and turn there. Before we get there, I want to mention an image that I think will be helpful over the course of this study. And this is kind of what we base the name of the series on. But it's a word picture that St. Augustine used to talk about the biblical teaching on church life. By the way, really quick tip, anytime you want to sound really well studied or researched in a biblical setting, quote Augustine. You're just, you're good. If you just say Augustine said it, you're, you're pretty much set on most things. Anyway, uh, Augustine talked about the church in terms of the invisible church and the visible church, and he defined it this way. He said, there is an invisible church that represents everyone who is truly in Christ. Every heart, every human being, uh, past, present, future, who is truly in Christ, every name that is written in the Lamb's book of life, this is the invisible church. And Augustine said it was invisible because as a human being, you have no way of knowing 100% for sure who's in that book and who isn't. You have no way of seeing into the human heart and seeing whether or not a heart has submitted itself to the Lordship of Christ and received life and salvation in him. And he compared that or contrasted that to the visible church. This is the physical and earthly manifestation or expression of God's kingdom here on earth. It's made up of every professing Christian who is organized into a local church. Now, this, this, this visual is interesting because if you took the invisible church and the visible church and you made it into a Venn diagram, it wouldn't be a circle. And, and I think on like a gut level, you're like, those should be the same thing. The people who are actually professing Christ and the people who are plugged into a local church, that should just be one group. But we know that's not true. We know that for, for, for maybe reasons of persecution or maybe reasons of immaturity, there are those who are truly in Christ, who are truly in the Lamb's book of life, who for whatever reason are not actually plugged into a physical manifestation of a local church. They're not members of a church. They're not attending. And we know beyond that, if you've spent any time in church world, that there are some people who are on the roster, who show up, who participate, but to use the biblical language, they're either wolves or goats. They're not actually living lives submitted to Christ. You know, Jesus specifically said at the final judgment, there'll be people who are shocked that they're not, in fact, sheep. So that's not a perfect circle. That Venn diagram hopefully, Lord willing, has a ton of overlap, but there's also some parts sticking out. So why do I bring this up and why do I leverage Augustine besides just trying to look smart out of the gate for the series? Why am I bringing up this image for us? And and the reason is I think this brings us to a vitally important biblical imperative about the church and specifically about us about Red Tree, and that's this. The church is, as we think of the local church, it is visible. The church is the power of the gospel made visible to the world. When, when individual believers in local churches proclaim the gospel and practice repentance and make disciples and participate in the ordinances, the power of the gospel is given feet and hands and faces. It makes it visible 
to a world in desperate need of Christ. And beloved of Jesus, this is us. Red Tree Church, we are a local individual church. We are a piece of the church visible. We're part of what Augustine was calling out. Our existence as individual believers and as a local church should be making the gospel of Jesus more visible to the world. Which raises a great question for our reflection. Are we? Does our personal and our communal faith make the gospel visible to the world? With that, let's jump into our text. Turn with me to Matthew 16. We're going to read Jesus' most early teaching directly on the church. This is also one of the most controversial passages in Scripture about the church. Uh, this is going to wrap us back around, I think, to, to the, as, as we kind of talk about some of the simple truths here. I think this will wrap us back around to the creed we used at the beginning, kind of talking about the power of the history of creeds within the church. And I think we'll end our time by focusing on three specific attributes of the local church as kind of defined by Scripture and summarized in our collective theology. And I honestly think this is just going to leave us tonight in this place of just conviction and gratefulness and worship as we reflect on Jesus' work on our behalf and the amazing love and trust that he has put into us as his church. So we'll end out with communion and celebration and worship and prayer and all the exciting things that go with the amazing love of Jesus given to us as a gift. So Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, we read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Tonight, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our interpreter, that you would be our discipler, that you would illuminate this text to us, that you would help us connect this to the rich and long history of reflection and theology and life that is your church that you've built, and that that would point us ultimately back to you and the work you've done on our behalf. We need you for this work, Jesus, so we pray it boldly in your name. Amen. Now, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that more has been written about this specific passage than any other passage in Scripture. I know that's wild because we probably don't think about this a super lot right now, 
But this was an incredibly important passage for a long time in church history. The reason is because this text sits at the center of a pretty large controversy between the Roman Catholic Church and everyone else. (laughs) We'll talk about that a little bit today, but to be honest, um, it's not terribly interesting. Uh, And so I'll give you some quick thoughts on it, and, and, and we'll jump to the actual meat on the bone of this text, which is really worth our time and our attention. So, so what actually happens here? This text is a hinge point in Jesus's ministry. In this text, Peter makes a public confession of Jesus's messiahship, and Jesus accepts that confession. He acknowledges the truth of his messiahship, and he takes on the mantle of Messiah and then gives some thoughts for his future church. From this point on, in in all four Gospels, Jesus focuses his ministry toward the cross. Peter's confession is the turning point. Now, now really quick, it's important to note here that, that when his ministry focus changes, Jesus introduces a new theological idea, and that is the idea of the church. Up until this point, Jesus exclusively talks about his followers as, as, as that, as followers. He, he uses familial images, but he really talks about them as the crowd, the people following him. He talks a lot about the kingdom of God, but here we're introduced to Jesus's church. And, and look how that idea comes about. So, so Jesus asks his disciples plainly what they think about him. Now, these guys would not have come this far in the journey with Jesus if they didn't see some sort of messianic hope in his ministry. But the reality is Jesus so broke the expectation theologically and socially of everyone in his day regarding Messiah that, that, that by that point in the journey, they had no idea what they thought, but they were just too invested to turn back. I mean, they had seen Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons and control the weather. They knew something was up, but it very obviously wasn't Messiah like they had been taught Messiah. So Jesus asks plainly, what do you guys think about me? He's giving them an opportunity to discuss and process this tension they're living in. Something is obviously up with this guy, but I've never had a rabbi or a teacher ever teach me about Messiah and had it look anything like what this guy is doing. Now, Peter speaks first, but this is not necessarily Peter stepping out from the group. It's, it's important to note here that, that, that Peter is speaking with a chronological primacy, right? He's speaking first, but he's speaking kind of authoritatively in representation of the whole group. And look what he says. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. When it comes down to it, the disciples, as much as they're confused, as much as they're living in tension, as much as this is not what they expected, they know what's up. They know who he is. They know it doesn't fit their mold. But let's be honest, guys. It's pretty hard to argue with the power of God on display. And so Jesus spins this revelation 
into a teaching on the church. He says that this revelation of his messiahship has come from God himself, and then he just looses into this, this whole thing, right? Peter, you're the rock upon which I'll build my church. Now, I, I, don't, I just don't want to spend a huge amount of time on the controversy. I'll, I'll just tell you, that the whole thing here is that the Roman Catholic Church uses this text and a couple others, but mainly this text to put a, 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 a authoritative primacy on Peter and anyone who stands in his direct line of authority, which is why uh, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, is considered the supreme authority in the church because he has direct authoritative lines back to the Apostle Peter. And they're saying, look, Jesus said right here, Peter is the rock and Jesus is going to build his church on him. So he must have some kind of special authority. And, and look, Jesus gave him keys and he said something about tying things up and loosening them. Peter must be special. Now, if you want to dig into this deeper, um, I, I'd love to point you to some stuff. But, but the thing is, it's a really, like, it's actually, if you take kind of the controversy in our present experience of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, it's actually a really simple text to understand. Jesus is affirming Peter's chronological primacy. Peter is the first person to proclaim Jesus as Messiah out loud publicly. There is a primacy to that. And Jesus is saying that, that, yes, I am the Messiah. Guys, it started. Here comes the church. Peter, you may be the first brick in this wall, but there's going to be a lot more to come. He's talking about his church. And, and by the way, Jesus uses this word that we read as church. This is the, the first time Jesus uses this word with kind of theological meaning. This is the Greek word, ekklesia, and it's wonderfully simple. It literally just means gathering. If you've ever wondered why we call our Sunday service a worship gathering, it's because of this. This idea of gathering together is prime to who the church is. It's the literal word for church, right? The people of God gathered together. We do this every week. Even when COVID made us all stay home, we gathered together on Facebook or YouTube because that's what the church does. It's God's people gathered. Now, Jesus has a couple really important things about his gathering in this short little text, and I'm going to list them out. And I think with a little explanation, this will kind of get us where we're going. First, we learn that Jesus will be the one who builds his church. He says to Peter on this rock, I will build my church. Belongs to Jesus. He'll do the work. We find out that the gates of hell will not defeat Jesus' church. The church has the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and the church has authority to bind and loose in heaven and on earth. And let me just give some brief explanation here. It's, it's Jesus, first, it's Jesus' church. He will build it. You can't get past this. Jesus is the one who builds his gathering. It does not matter how cool or hip the church is. It does not matter the marketing budget. It does not matter the strategy. It does not matter how cool or not cool I as a leader is or whoever the leader is. Jesus is the one who builds his church. Peter and the disciples may have confessed Jesus as Messiah, and they may literally be the gathering he's referring to, but they're only that because God revealed it to them. 
this directly applies to us right now. And, and I want to come back to this. When we talk about the church and we're talking about these ancient things, it's really easy to kind of intellectualize it and think of, well, oh, that was really cool that Jesus said that to Peter. And that was really cool how the church worked back then. But guys, this is the church. You are a part of this ancient institution that Jesus inaugurated. Jesus built this church also, and he continues to do so. It does not matter what preference we may have of how to construct or design or organize our church about how we feel and what we enjoy. When it comes down to it, as no matter how vital or important Red Tree or any other church might be for your faith journey, it's not your church. It's not our church. It's Jesus's church. And he built it. And then we get one of my favorite lines in all of scripture about the church. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I love this one. Not only because it would work really well as like heavy metal lyrics, but just, I love, I love the truth that we're talking about here. You know, we know on some level that God supernaturally protects and preserves and sends his church. That, that seems kind of like a basic working assumption when we're talking about this idea of church. But, but Jesus says something amazingly specific here. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. This Greek word that we read as gates only has two possible meanings. One is the literal city gate of a fortified city, and the other are the defensive fortifications built outside the walls of a fortified city. The reality is that Jesus is saying that hell will not be able to defend against the attacks of his church. I need you to hear that. We read this word prevail and we, we get this image of the spiritual warfare and all the pressures against God's people and the way Satan works through society and fallen people and, and structural things to put pressures against the church. And that may be true and spiritual warfare is a thing, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that my church is going to go invade hell and the gates won't stand. They'll tear them down and they'll conquer the city. Because the strongest defenses that Satan has put around the things that are precious to him are not able to stand against the power of God. And that power is made visible through the church. I mean, wow. Guys, this is God talking about us. Talking about our little faith family right here. How many of you guys would think about Red Tree Church and just go, yeah, Red Tree Church, gates of hell shall not prevail against us. But this is what our Lord says. The church will have the keys to the kingdom of God. There's a lot there, but the most, the most basic form for our purposes tonight is that Jesus is saying that his church will be used to usher folk into the kingdom. That there is something about the work and the ministry of the church that God will use to bring people into the... You're talking about keys, right? The gatekeeper, the person who can open and close the door. Jesus is saying that ministry is going to happen inside the church. And the church has authority to bind and loose in heaven and on earth. 
This is a common Jewish term used in the rabbinic communities of Jesus' day that, that refers to parsing doctrine and understanding of Scripture. Jesus is saying that his church will carry authority to help define doctrine and teaching and the understanding of the word. Now, we could go super deep and detailed. Each one of these points could be a sermon in and of itself. But I think we get the basic principle when we're looking at this. Jesus inaugurated and built and sustains his church, and he is sending it on a brutal mission to which it will be successful, and he's going to use that church to draw more into the kingdom, and he's given that church authority to do the work of ministry here. Guys, when it comes down to it, Jesus seems to think that his church is a pretty big deal. Beloved, the church of Jesus is not an afterthought. It's not a sort of happenstance result of Jesus' ministry. Oh no, he like vacuum cleaned it up to heaven. We got to do something. Let's organize. Let's meet and keep praying. No, the church is part of Jesus' plan. It's part of his gospel mission. It's, it's plan A. It's the thing he designed. It's important. And and I cannot, I feel like I'm a broken record, but I, I cannot overstate this enough. We are a part of this. Right here and right now, our little church family, we stand firmly in the midst of this plan and this tradition that our God inaugurated and set in place from eternity past. Come on, guys. Which brings me to creeds. During this series, we're going to recite a couple of old church creeds over the course of our gatherings. I know for some of you guys who grew up in certain traditions, you're like, I got that one. I've done it before. I'll be able to click right into the lane. I know for some of you, you're like, that's really weird. It sounds kind of cultish when we're all just standing there repeating it monotone. Um, there's several reasons for this, and I'd love for you, it's only five weeks, I'd love for you to just be, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to repeat the creeds. I think it'll be a good practice. You see, in the creeds, I, I feel like there's just this way that we can connect ourselves to our forefathers in the faith. I feel like in the creeds, we can have these amazing moments where we realize that Christians literally 1,700 years ago were asking the same questions of their Bibles and the same questions of their faith and doing their best to represent Christ faithfully to an ever-changing world, just like we are. We get to recite the fruit of their theological study and connect with them. I had a professor in seminary who said, anytime you engage in a creed or a piece of church history, you're jumping into a Bible study with some of the most faithful, wise, intelligent saints in all of church history. Because you're getting to experience the fruit of their lifetimes of faithfulness and faithfully searching and engaging the word. It would be a shame to miss out on that. We also remember, by the way, the, the the creeds represent generations of work to faithfully represent biblical teaching in clear and concise ways. I think they can help give us eyes to understand and remember biblical teaching. 
which is, by the way, how, how we're going to kind of wrap this around. The, the creed we read this evening is the final version of the Nicene Creed. It was developed over about 100 years in response to several heresies that were threatening the church in, the, uh, in, in, in kind of the 200s kind of area, 2 and 300s. In, in, and essentially what, what they tried to do, its purpose was to encapsulate the gospel teaching of the Bible in a memorable and recitable form to help the average layman with limited access to a physical Bible. Remember, this is the 300s. We're pre-printing press, right? To stand up against heretical teaching. So in the creed, the biblical teaching regarding the church is summed up in just three words. I love this, right? The father gets like five paragraphs. The son gets, you should read the original version because in the original version, the father gets like a sentence. The son gets like eight paragraphs and the Holy Spirit gets about half a sentence. You're like, oh, come on. But anyway, they fleshed it out. They, they worked their way through the Trinity, worked their way through the gospel. And when they get to the church at the end, the church gets three words. Did you guys catch this? The church, according to this, uh, to this Nicene Creed, is holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Now I want to look at each of these three and, and kind of look at just some of the biblical teaching, one of the biblical teachings that each of them is kind of referencing. And I think this is just going to kind of wrap us around in a cool way. First, it says the church is holy. You can turn here if you want. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 for you. This is a famous passage. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see this? The church is holy. The church is set apart. That's, that's what's meant by this biblical word, holy. The church is set apart for the glory and mission of God. If you are a follower of Christ and you are a part of his church, then you have been set apart from the rest of the world. You are holy. You are not called by God simply to experience the, the good parts for you of salvation, the forgiveness of sins and eternity. You've been called into his church. The church has a mission to make God known to the world. And that message is carried forth in part by the church's holiness. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your life is not yours. Your Savior demands things of you, an ethical, sacrificial life. And that holy, set-apart life given over to the mission and glory of God, there's power in that, power to advance the kingdom. The church is holy. Second, the creed says the church is Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, by the way. I'll... I'll I'm a, little, I'm a little disappointed the Roman Catholics stole that word. It's a good word, but not, not Roman Catholic. Read with me Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. It says, I, therefore, a, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know if you heard some repetition in there, The word Catholic means universal. It means that Jesus has one church. That term is confusing because if you look around, you'll realize there are lots of churches. (laughs) And a lot of them have really strong opinions about other ones. But the reality is, Jesus' church is a unified church. Unified across space and time. If you are in Christ, then you belong to the same church as the Apostle Peter and St. Augustine and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the crazy charismatics down the street that make you uncomfortable. The church has many, many local expressions, but we must never forget that although the church may be organized locally in different and even passionate ways, there is one church. One. And she is unified. And we must fight for that. We must fight for the love and humility required for unity. Look, you can and you should have theological convictions and passions. Right? There are, to use use Mark Dever's term, there are more and less pure expressions of Christ's church. There's such a thing as bad doctrine. And you should care about it, because the Bible cares about it. But at the same time, you can never forget, never forget that you are going to share eternity with a whole lot of believers that have vastly different theological convictions than you do. I think you will be, and I will be astounded at the amount of things that we have gotten wrong. (laughs) And the amount of grace that Jesus has had for our arrogance and our assurance. Because the church is Catholic. And I'm keeping that word. A lot of people told me you can't use it. You just need to change it to universal. I like that one better. I'm keeping it. You heard it here first. We're a Catholic church now, guys. (laughs) Third, the creed says the church is apostolic. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. I forgot to copy this one into my, into my notes here. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, we read this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh in the hands. Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That was a lot. But, but, but I love this. Do you see where it says right at the end there? This, this whole gospel life, freedom, beauty experience that we have. In verse 20, it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Because our, our faith, our church, is an apostolic one. And here's what that means. The term apostle means sent one. See, Jesus sent his apostles with a very specific and very powerful gospel message. See, Jesus lived this perfect life and died this unjust death and rose from the dead by the power of God and made a way for dead in their sins sinners to find life and freedom in him. All they must do is receive that gift in faith and repentance, submit to his lordship. It's a powerful message. And so he sent his apostles with that powerful, world-changing message. And that sentness has continued supernaturally and faithfully for literally 2,000 years, working its way from the very mouth of Jesus to you specifically. If this truth doesn't give you some goosebumps, I honestly think you just haven't fully thought about it. Reflect on this with me for a moment. 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood on a mountain with his apostles, his sent ones. And he commissioned them, he sent them to go make disciples and baptize them and teach them his teaching. And they did. Just a few short weeks later, as those apostles preached, thousands of people met the power of Jesus in this message, and and thousands of people came to Christ on the same day. When persecution broke out, that church was forced to leave Jerusalem, but as they left, they continued their sentness, and they continued to preach the same gospel. And churches were planted all over the Roman Empire, and they began to expand out in all sorts of different ways. One in particular has some pretty important meaning to me. See, more and more people met Jesus and began to participate in this sentness, and two of these men named Paul and Silas ended up traveling across the Mediterranean and preaching this same gospel in a city called Philippi in a place called Europe. This was the first time that gospel message made its way to that continent. And believers began to grow up there and churches began to plant and grow around this new continent. 
And the believers spread this gospel with them everywhere they went. The sentness continued generation after generation. Soon, all of Europe had heard this gospel, and folk as far as England and Russia were participating in this gospel work of sentness. And as the, as the Roman Empire rose and fell, Christianity gained tons of power and prestige, but somehow managed to survive the fall, survive the political turmoil. Now, while parts of the church caved into social pressures and fell into the sins of the world, there always remained these faithful sent ones who went and took this message with them everywhere they went. This gospel was challenged time and time again by different beliefs and different cultures and different pressures. But the truth of the gospel always shone through and the church always faithfully carried its torch. It always managed to preserve that sent message in the truth of the gospel. In fact, at one point, when the leaders of the European church became hopelessly corrupted, the church stood up and called the leaders and the church itself out for repentance and reformation. And the faithful sent ones continued to share the gospel and continued to make disciples and continued to preserve the faith of the apostles from believer to believer and family to family and city to city. And eventually a group of these European Christians became convicted that as exploration opened up of more and more of the world, that the gospel needed to be faithful to send, the church needed to be faithful to send more and more sent ones along in this exploration. Everywhere where people lived, the gospel needed to be sent. And this Moravian community sent more sent ones into Africa and into Asia and into North America. Baptist and Congregationalist churches rose up all around North America. More and more sent ones proclaimed and preached and discipled and preserved that message. Governments rose and governments fell. Revolutions happened and civil war happened and political parties rose and they fell out of grace and fell out of power. But in all of that, the gospel still marched on, unchanging, faithful to the original message. And you and I are in this space right now because some sent one came to us. Someone told you the gospel. Someone brought the message of hope and life in Jesus directly from their heart to out of their mouth into your ears. And guys, this is wild. We received the same gospel message that Jesus taught on that mountain to those sent ones 2,000 years ago. Faithfully preserved faithfully passed on, sent generation after generation, person after person, heart after heart. The church fathers called this the singular rule of our faith, to faithfully preserve and proclaim the teaching of Jesus handed down to the apostles. This is why we say our faith is apostolic. Because you might not speak Greek, but the gospel that you received is the same gospel Jesus himself preached. It's the same gospel that Peter himself proclaimed to the church 2,000 years ago. 
And by the way, that same story worked itself out in numerous ways across the world. I spoke of the European expansion of Christianity because that's my faith heritage. can trace my faith journey backwards, generation by generation that way. But the gospel exploded from that mountain to everywhere. To the, to the entirety of Africa, to the, to the depths of India, to, to all of Asia. It's, it's just as amazing and just as beautiful. Every story of that faithful scent expansion. And I say all that to say this. Red Tree Church. We don't exist in a vacuum. It's not like Jesus did all this amazing work and then 2,000 years later, a bunch of people got together to sing Chris Tomlin songs. That's not how it went down. It's not like Jesus proclaimed his message and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and then it just kind of hung out till 2008. Guys, we are a part of something. We're a part of this amazing family of faith. We are an expression of this same church that Jesus set up. The same church that Jesus has built and preserved. The same church that Jesus has endowed with authority and power. We are part of this tradition. We carry the same torch of faith that our forebears have been carrying since that mountain 2,000 years ago. We're a part of this amazing work that God is doing in our world. And guys, nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. We get to storm the gates of hell with the hope and power of our Jesus. Us, you and me, in this space. We get to leave here walking in the authority of power of Jesus with his hope and his message and his gospel. And beloved, he has promised you that hell itself cannot stand up against the power of that gospel. So, with that in mind, let's do this. Let's take a few moments and just reflect on our amazing heritage and our amazing Jesus and the amazing God who has included us, even us, in his amazing plan. Guys, you, if you're in this space, whether you're here with us physically or you're watching online, if you are in Christ, if you have submitted to the lordship of Jesus and you have received his salvific, forgiving work on your behalf, then hear me. You are the church. And you are God's plan to make his gospel visible to this world. And by the way, he has guaranteed your success. Come on. Chris is going to come up. And we're going to sing a song. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for us to spend a few moments, whether you're at home or whether you're sitting here with us, I'd like for us to spend a few moments in reflective prayer. I know I got a little fired up there, guys. We might need to take a minute, take a breath. <laughs> I'd like for us to spend a few moments in reflective prayer, thinking about this truth, thinking about the family that you have been adopted into, 
thinking about the heritage that you have been given by our gracious and wonderful Savior and thinking about the mission that he has set aside for you and for me and for us. We're not exempt from that. We're not somehow less than that. It's why our church is here, to be a part of that. So I'd encourage you to meet with Jesus. Talk to him about your thoughts on your place in this faith journey. Talk to him about your sentness. Maybe thank him for the sent one that he sent into your life. Maybe it was probably 15 or 20 sent ones for some of you more hard-headed folks. Thank him for that. Reflect on that. We haven't done this in a while, but we're actually going to have prayer counselors available tonight. Craig and Kim, they're going to be in the back of the room. If you need someone just to chat and pray with you, they can step outside or step in some space so you can chat and pray. But I'm going to ask you guys just to take a few minutes and sit in this truth. If you're in Christ, you're in his church. That means everything we talked about is about you. You're holy. Part of something Catholic. You have an apostolic heritage. You're a sent one. Love it, take a few minutes to do the work you need to do with Jesus. After, after we've had just a few minutes to sit in this, I'll pray for us again. And then we'll listen to a song and then we'll take communion together. But beloved, meet with Jesus and do the work you need to do.